So this morning we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'll be reading from verses 1 to 8. It says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge the angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Well, some of the great generals, uh, military leaders throughout history have learned a very important but a very costly lesson, and that is that winning sometimes isn't worth it. Sometimes the cost of winning is just too great. Uh, there's a name for these victories that are costly, that really aren't worth it, and they're called Pyrrhic victories. It goes back to a Greek king named Pyrrhus, and uh, Pyrrhus was a distant relative of Alexander the Great, and he had these kind of ambitions to do what his ancestor had done and kind of take over the Roman Empire. And so he entered into this alliance with this Greek city-state called Tartantum, and then he went and he was going to attack the Roman forces. And he had 25,000 men, and he had these secret war elephants, and they went into battle at Heracle, and he won a decisive victory. Uh, from there, he went on to Ascalon, and he won there as well. The problem was, with each victory, his army got weaker and weaker. Whereas he, is, he inflicted greater casualties on the Roman armies, the Roman army was able to replenish their soldiers much, quick, much more quickly than he was. And so with each victory, he was getting weaker and weaker. The Roman historian Plutarch quotes Pyrrhus as saying this. He says, if we're, we are victorious in one more battle with the Romans, we shall be utterly ruined. Winning was literally destroying his army. Sometimes winning isn't worth it. Another example, in the Revolutionary War, uh, the British forces wanted to uh, maintain control of the hills around Boston so they could have greater control of the Boston Harbor. And so they decided they were going to attack Bunker Hill. The revolutionary forces, a ragtag group of Americans, got together, about a thousand of them, and they're going to try to defend Bunker Hill. And so they did pretty well. The, the revolutionary forces did pretty well defending the, the Bunker Hill. However, they ran out of ammunition. And after they ran out of ammunition, the British forces ended up winning and taking the hill. However, in the process, the British forces lost some of their strongest leaders, about 100 officials. And also, this gave the American troops strength and resolve that now they had this determination that they could take the British army, that they could fight with them and, and, and succeed. So while the British forces won the victory, it wasn't helpful. One historian writes this, Bunker Hill was a pirate victory. Its strategic effect practically nil since the two armies remained in virtually the same position they had held before. Its consequences, nevertheless, cannot be ignored. A force of farmers and townsmen fresh from their fields and shops with hardly a semblance of orthodox military organization had met and fought on equal terms with the professional 
British army. Never again would the British commanders lightly attempt an assault on Americans in fortified positions. Revolutionary leader Nathaniel Green once said, I wish we could sell them another hill at the same price. Sometimes winning isn't worth it. Final example of a pirate victory, Pearl Harbor. Japanese mounted this surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, and by any stretch of the imagination, it was a great defeat for the American forces. 138 airplanes were destroyed, uh, 2,403 Americans were killed, 1,178 were wounded. And yet this was an event that was kind of a turning point in World War II as it brought the United States into World War II and eventually led to the defeat of the Axis powers. After the battle, Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto is reported to have said, I fear all we have done is awaken a sleeping giant. Sometimes winning isn't worth it, and yet our culture often sets up winning as kind of the be-all and end-all. Late basketball player Kobe Bryant once said this, winning takes precedence over all. There's no gray area. There's no almost. We want to win. We want to win in our jobs. We want to win in our families. You know, I think about social media, and I would submit to you that social media is not just uh, about uploading pictures and videos. It's about assessing our social capital, kind of putting those pictures out there to see how are we doing compared to other people. Are we living the life that we need to be living? Are we winning, so to speak, compared to how other people are living? Obsession with winning has influenced us from the youngest ages. From the youngest ages, we're taught not just that we should learn, not that we should improve ourselves, but that we have to get, be better than other people. We have to get good grades. We have to get better grades than other people. Because if we get better grades than other people, we'll get into a good college, and then we'll get a good job, and then we'll make a lot of money, then we'll be successful. And it's all about winning. We see it in youth sports. Uh, I'd submit to you that today, sometimes... Uh, Kids spend more time in preparation for sports than professional athletes did 100 years ago. 100 years ago, professional athletes had other jobs. They didn't have time to invest in their craft and, and train and train and train. And that, now our youngest kids sometimes have more training than maybe those professional athletes did 100 years ago. Is it a surprise that by the time uh, kids reach 13... Uh, according to a survey done by the National Alliance for Youth Sports, about 70% of kids in the United States want to quit youth sports because they say it's not fun anymore because it's all about winning. We have this bent towards winning, perhaps winning at any cost, and it can not only be counterproductive, it can be downright deadly. In, in the church that Paul is talking to, he is, is trying to address that impulse that they have to kind of win at all costs. And apparently what was happening was people were uh, experiencing a grievance. They were having conflict with their brother or sister in Christ. And what they would do is they would go right down to the courthouse and file a lawsuit against that other person to prove that they were right, to make that other person pay for what they've done wrong. Now, on the one hand, there's a semblance of wisdom in that. And that it was better than them taking matters into their own hands. Maybe they were in fact wronged. Maybe they legally had some standing. Maybe the judge was going to rule in, in the person's favor. But Paul says what's happening here is preposterous. He uses very cutting, very searing language when he talks about what's happening here. 
Speaking to the pers- of the person who brings a lawsuit against his brother or sister in Christ, another believer says this, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Likewise, whereas back in 4.14, chapter 4, verse 14, he says this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Here in this passage, he takes a different approach. He says, I say this to your shame. In other words, in four, chapter 4, verse 13, he's like, I don't want to shame you. I don't want to embarrass you. Here is like, I want you to be ashamed because what you're doing is serious and what you're doing is costly. So before we go any further, we need to determine, first of all, what is Paul talking about? Uh, when we're talking about lawsuits between believers, what is he talking about? First, he's not talking about criminal matters. He's not talking about murder or uh, theft or, or those kind of things. He's not talking about things like that. He's not saying, oh, just handle those things inside the church. In fact, in Romans chapter 13, he talks about the authority that the uh, government has, that they have the power to wield the sword to punish the evildoer and reward those who do good. So he's not talking about just having uh, criminal matters and just handling those inside the church. Not saying that at all. Uh, specifically what he's talking about, he's talking about relatively insignificant matters, things that don't really matter that much. He calls them trivial matters. And the way that he talks when he talks about defrauding your brother, it may have had a financial component, that there was some financial conflict involved. Now, when we're looking at this passage and he's talking about lawsuits, I don't think that he's saying that we should never be in a lawsuit with another believer under any context. It's a general principle given what was happening in this church. And basically, I think the problem here was they had this attitude of, I need to win. I need to have the law on my side. I need to make other people pay if they do wrong. And so they had this impulse to win at all costs. Now, we think about this, and we think about this whole idea of lawsuits between believers. Maybe you think to yourself, well, I'm not in a lawsuit with another believer. Uh, maybe I'm not even a believer. Maybe uh, I have no intention of never you know, being involved in a lawsuit with another believer. How does this apply to us today? Well, hopefully we're not in a lawsuit with another believer. Maybe some people are. But hopefully we're not. But I know that there's one thing that we all are involved in from time to time, and that is conflict. Each and every one of us are involved with conflict, whether that's within our family, within the church, within our friends, uh, within the marriage relationship. When people get together, there's conflict. People have different opinions, and we all have this sinful tendency, this bent of our heart, to try to go our own way, to prove that we're right, to try to win over other people. Uh, there's a movie uh, called 1917, uh, directed by Sam Mendes. And in that movie, Lance Corporal Schofield has been tasked with crossing through enemy-infested territory uh, to deliver crucial news of a secret ambush to the British front lines. But he's given a warning. He's told to tell the British forces to stand down and to save themselves. And yet he's given a warning to bring a witness before the officer that he's supposed to tell this news to. He's, he's told, make sure there are witnesses. Some men just like to fight. Pastor Jared Wilson comments on this. The instruction is sobering. Even though Schofield is bringing direct orders to stand down, which will save thousands of lives, he's cautioned that the orders must, might be ignored. Why? Because regardless of the thousands of lives, uh, be, be, 
regardless of the superior command to stand down, regardless of the cost, regardless of the impossible odds and the foolhardy death that would ensue, there is a zeal for battle in some that overrides all senses. When you feel built for war, when you long for the rush of conflict, not warring feels like cowardice, uselessness, pointlessness. And so we live in a culture that prizes winning, prizes competition, and so we have that tendency to be driven to conflict. We all experience conflict. And so I think the admonition, the things that Paul tells can be applicable to all of us, whether we're in a lawsuit or not in a lawsuit, because we're all in the midst of conflicts from time to time with other people. So there's two things that Paul tells the Corinthians about conflicts, about struggles. Uh, first thing he tells the Corinthians is that what they're doing doesn't make practical sense. What Paul takes issue with is here, here is the fact that they're going to unbelievers and looking to them to judge disputes between believers. Paul says that believers will judge the world and judge angels. Now, what exactly that means, I'm not completely sure. What does he mean when he says that the world judge the angels, uh, judge, judge the world? I'm not sure what he means. But what he's saying is that unbelievers don't have jurisdiction. They're not able to uh, judge between disputes between believers. In, in, it's incompatible to go to an unbeliever to settle disputes. It would be kind of like going to a dentist for a heart problem. You go to a dentist and they're doctors. They know a little bit about the body. They might be able to give you some helpful pointers perhaps. Perhaps not. Who knows? But they're not going to be able to fix your heart problem. You're going to the wrong person. And so Paul says that when there's a dispute between believers, we need to go to a third party who is a believer, who has the jurisdiction, who knows the situation, who's going to look at it from a godly perspective. Not that someone outside of the body of Christ may mean ill will towards, towards the situation, but they're just not qualified. They don't see things from a spiritual perspective. And so the principle here is that we can't seek worldly counsel for spiritual problems. We can't seek worldly counsel for spiritual problems. See, when we're experiencing conflicts, when we're experiencing struggles with other believers, who we go to for advice really matters. So, for example, if you're experiencing conflict with your spouse and you go to someone who is not a believer and tell them the situation and, and the struggles that you have, maybe that unbeliever might say to you, well, you need to make sure you're happy. And if your spouse doesn't make you happy, then kick them to the curb. Find somebody else. I mean, they don't look at things through a spiritual perspective, from a spiritual perspective. If you go to someone with a financial struggle that you're having, maybe their advice is, you know, look out for yourself. Try to amass the most wealth that you can. It doesn't matter what is right. Just try to take care of yourself. It doesn't matter about integrity. It doesn't matter about the poor and again, that's overgeneralizing. But Paul says when you have struggles, it's not helpful to go to the world to try to fix your spiritual struggles. They don't have this perspective to see, uh, see things as they are and to point you in the right direction. And so the real question is where or to whom do we turn to when we're struggling, when we're experiencing a conflict? Do we turn to someone who is spiritual who is walking with God, or do we turn to someone who is going to look to look to uh, through a worldly perspective? And bad advice can really send us down the wrong path, and sometimes it's really hard to come back from that bad advice. 
So I have this uh, bonsai, a little tree. It's called a uh, Brazilian rain tree. And uh, I got it when I was in seminary several years ago. My grandmother purchased it for me. And I really love this tree because uh, it, it closes up at nighttime. The leaves close up at nighttime. And then it opens up in, during the day or when it's raining, uh, the leaves will close up. So I really like this tree and I've had it for several years. And when I was living at my parents' house, it was doing very well. They had a sunroom, so I'd take it outside in the sunroom in the, in the, in the summertime. And it was flourishing and then did, did okay in the wintertime. Not as good, but still did pretty good. And uh, then I got married and we moved. Uh, we had a house in Tonawanda and it did pretty well there. And uh, then we moved uh, to the parsonage next door here. And it just was not happy. It, nothing that I did made this tree happy. It just kept losing its leaves. The branches would die. And then I would think it was going to die. And then there'd just be this little bit of life. So it's an expensive tree, has kind of a sentimental value, and so I tried everything to try to save this tree. I tried to give it more light. I put a, uh, you know, a plant light, grow light on it. Uh, I tried to, I thought maybe I'm watering it too much, so I've cut back on the water a little bit. I said, then I thought, well, maybe I'm not watering it enough, so I watered it more. Gave it special fertilizer. I changed the soil. Did everything that I could, and the result was always the same. It just kept losing leaves. Branches kept dying. And this is happening over a period of years. And so I, it's just kind of hanging on for dear life. Looks terrible. It's making a mess all over the floor. It would start to grow a little bit, lose its leaves, and there would be a mess everywhere. So I get to a point where I'm like, I don't want to throw it out because it's an expensive plant, but I don't want it anymore because it's just dead, dying. So I finally, I'm like, I'm, I got to get this out of here. So I get this, take it, and I put it in uh, the office, actually the office over here in the church. And I was like, this is the last ditch effort. I'm going to put it here. Hopefully it dies, and then I could just throw it out, and I don't have to feel bad about it. And it just went crazy. Like the leaves opened up. It just started shooting out all this new growth. And I mean, it gets huge. So much so that I have to cut it back because it's growing so vigorously. And I finally realized what the problem was. See, I had looked up, done research on it, talked to people who supposedly knew about these things. And they told me, you give it as much light as you can Give it as much humidity as you can. That's what this tree likes. Turns out it doesn't really like that much light. So I had apparently been roasting it for these two years. Now, of course, that wasn't a big deal. It was just a plant. And thankfully, it came back. Sometimes when we get the wrong advice, it can take us down the wrong path, and it's hard to come back from that. So it's important we go to the right person when we're looking for advice, specifically in the con context of a conflict with another person that we're experiencing. So that's important. But then as an aside, it's not really addressed in this text, but I thought it was important to mention. Uh, I think it's important, too, how we go to a person, how we share our conflict with another person. Because you can go to the right person, and if you share your struggle in the wrong way, you're going to get the wrong advice. See, I think we all have this tendency that we want other people to confirm our behavior, to confirm our decisions. And so if we come to someone 
share our struggle that we're having, whatever that struggle might be, and we share it in a way that's kind of one-sided, maybe not 100% honest, then maybe they're going to give us the advice that we want, but not necessarily the advice that we need. So imagine you have a friend come to you. friend says, uh, I got fired today. My boss is a complete jerk. I was sitting in my office. My boss came in, just started yelling at me, says, I want you out of here. Didn't give me an explanation for why I was getting fired. And I, I've been working there for several years. I, I've worked hard. I've stayed late. And I can't believe that my boss would treat me this way. Now, if your friend told you that, you'd probably be somewhat sympathetic. You might uh, offer your sympathy. You might even kind of commiserate with them that the boss is really being unreasonable with, with your friend and kind of, you know, commiserate that way. But imagine that wasn't the whole story. Imagine the reason that your friend was fired was because he was stealing from the company and it was caught on tape. And it wasn't the first time it had been happening continually. And the reason the boss was so angry was because this had happened again and again, and the boss wanted to give him every benefit of the doubt, wanted to give him a chance, and still the behavior continued. And the boss didn't feel the need to explain why he was getting fired. Everybody knew why he was getting fired. He was stealing from the company. Now, if that was the case, your advice might be a little bit different. You probably wouldn't offer as much sympathy. You would probably be like, well, why don't you just stop stealing and you wouldn't have an issue? See, how we tell someone our struggles or our conflict can make us get the wrong advice, can make people just kind of confirm what we want to hear rather than what we need to hear. And so we need to be careful about that. We need to be careful that we go to the right person when it comes to a conflict, specifically with another believer. And we also need to go, be careful that we're going with the right heart, that we truly want to do the right thing, and we're truly seeking godly counsel. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 1, uh, 1 to 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So that's the first thing Paul tells us, what, that what they're doing doesn't make practical sense, that we can't seek worldly counsel for spiritual problems. The second thing he tells the believers, the Corinthian believers, is that what they're doing doesn't make spiritual sense. In short, what they're doing is not in accordance with the gospel. The Corinthians feel wronged, and so they march down to the courthouse because they want to be proven right. And they want uh, the court to uphold their cause and to make the, the, the perpetrator pay for what they've done. So the desire is for justice and for justice to, to be meted out, for wrongs to be made right. Now, the question is, what if Christ had acted in this way? If you look at the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophets, often uh, many of the prophets are written in the form of what's called a covenantal lawsuit. And there's a specific form of writing in Hebrew that elaborates what that looks like. But basically what it looks like is uh, the prophets will examine the law and they'll basically say, 
okay, Israel, this is where Israel has fallen short of that law. And it will kind of, the prophets will kind of give their case for how Israel has fallen short in their attempt to please God. And again, some of the prophets are scathing in the way that they fought, uh, Israel fell short again and again and again. So Jesus could have come to the earth, and he could have came before the judgment seat of God and brought out the Old Testament prophets and said, hey, here it is. Here's how Israel has fallen short. He could have shown how each and every one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. But what does he do? He doesn't do that. He comes to the earth and he chooses to take the hit, to take the punishment. He chooses to be defrauded rather for, uh, than for us to be punished. He would have had every right to make us pay for our injustices, for our sins, but he doesn't do so. That's why Paul says in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. He says, before you even get a verdict from the judge, you've already lost because you're not living in accordance with the gospel. You're not living in accordance with the way Christ would have you act. And so then Paul goes on, he says, why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? In the face of conflict with another believer in Christ, he says, sometimes it's better to be defrauded. Sometimes it's better to be wronged than to do something wrong. It's better to be defrauded than to defraud your neighbor. It's better to take the hit for the sake of the relationship, to live in accordance with the gospel, than to stand up for our rights. What does Jesus tell us? What does he say? Does he say, if someone does something wrong to you, take them to court. Sue them for everything that they have. Make them pay for what they've done. Jesus doesn't do that. What does he say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 to 46? He says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Jesus says it's not a matter of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's not a matter of just upholding justice. Sometimes the gospel calls us, sometimes Jesus calls us to take the hit, to forgive those who persecute us, to love those who have wronged us. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since, your, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, sometimes when we think about things like this, sometimes people will be like, well, I don't want to be a punching bag. I don't want people to just get away with injustice. Uh, I don't want to condone people's bad behavior. Now, Again, I think what Paul is talking about, this is a specific instance, and we can kind of gain principles from that. And what the Bible often does, the Bible often gives us principles to live by, and then the Holy Spirit applies those principles to specific areas of our life. So you can probably think of a situation where maybe a lawsuit between believers would be appropriate, where maybe justice needs to be meted out for the sake of the person who's doing the wrong. 
So again, Paul, I don't think, is saying that we should never confront someone about their sin. We should never have lawsuits under any circumstance. I don't think he's saying that, but I think what he's saying is the fundamental attitude of our heart is not to uphold our rights, but to uphold love. It's not to uphold our rights, it's to uphold love. That should be our highest priority because I think as believers, we often have a choice. Are we going to be right or are we going to be righteous? Are we going to be right or are we going to be righteous? Even if someone does something wrong to us and we have every single right to demand that they pay, demand that they're punished, it's not necessarily being righteous. It's not necessarily walking in the way of Christ. And oftentimes as we walk in love, if we uphold love, that can be the catalyst for change in people's lives more so than if we just sought justice, if we sought to lash out against them. So here's an experiment. After church, go home, write down a list of 10 things that your spouse does. They have to be things that are clear that they do that are wrong or that bother you. And then after that, Go to your spouse and say, hey, I just wanted to go through this list. I, I was just sitting around. The bills don't play till later. And I was just thinking about 10 things that annoy me that you do. And I just wanted to talk to you about these things, and maybe you could fix these things for me. I don't think that would work out well for you. I don't think that would promote a deep relationship. I don't think that would promote change in your spouse. I think that would provoke a pretty big fight. Probably not a good idea to do. And yet love covers up a multitude of sins. There's a book called On This Day. Uh, it's written by Carl Windsor. And in the book, uh, he talks about just different things that happened on you know, each day of the year. And on Valentine's Day, he tells a story uh, about a grandmother. And he, he's, he gives this quote. He says, even the most devoted couple will experience a stormy bout once in a while. Um, so this grandmother, they're celebrating uh, their 50th wedding anniversary and uh, had this great relationship, marriage relationship for so long. And people wanted to know, what's the secret? How do you keep that love going for 50 years? And uh, she said, well, I resolved uh, before we got married, or actually on, on our wedding day, I decided that I was going to write down a list of 10 things that my spouse does that bother me, and I'm going to choose to overlook them for the sake of the relationship. I'm going to overlook them for the sake of love. And so they, from there, they wanted to know, so what are those things? What are those things that you overlook in your spouse? And she responded this way. She said, well, to tell you the truth, my dear, I never did get around to listing them. But whenever my husband did something that made me hopping mad, I would say to myself, Lucky for him, that's one of the ten. She chose to be righteous rather than to be right. She allowed love to cover up a multitude of sins. See, winning isn't everything. Sometimes winning can be hurtful. Sometimes winning can lead us down the wrong path. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 2. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd overseer of your souls. So in conclusion, this passage shows us two things, that we can't seek worldly counsel for spiritual problems, and second, that we must decide whether we're going to be right or whether we're going to be righteous. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that even though we're sinners, even though we are like sheep who have gone astray, even though before you we're all guilty, we all deserve your judgment, we all deserve your wrath, we thank you that you chose to take the punishment for us, to take the the sin and death upon yourself so that we might experience life. Lord, as we're living this life and seeking to walk in your footsteps, Lord, help us to do things that are difficult. Help us to love those around us, even when they don't deserve it. Even when every impulse in us wants to prove that we're right to win over them, help us to lay down our weapons and to overlook for the sake of love when necessary and required. Lord, help us to have a heart like you do. Help us to love those around us with a love that's unstoppable. And as we love those around us, as our our hearts seek to uphold love, Lord, use that love, use our forgiveness to point them to you, to point them to change, but to, to point them to following you with all their heart. In Christ's name I pray, amen.